0: Everything fades with time. The only thing worth remembering is that we will be forgotten, as will our achievements. Still, we make an effort, and the method tried and tested is to make a mark the very bones of the earth, the very stuff it's made from, stone. The stone-made heart of Lusk Village is still there, more than a thousand years after its construction. Battles, tranquillities, ceremony misery prosperity all have waxed and waned in the shadow of our round tower the village has grown up and been thrown down many times around this stone center and around its roots a tiny stone city has formed a little city of the dead there are tombs and headstones memorials to the great and to the plain the very first one to catch the eye is dedicated to sir robert ecklin of Kinure near rush rush house or Kinure house was home to the dominant landowners of the area. Robert's grandfather, Sir Henry Eclan, bought the estate from the Duke of Armand around 1708. Sir Robert inherited it in 1725, and according to the verse on his tomb, he was a model of decency. His wife, Elizabeth, Nee Bellingham, made a minor adjustment to Alexander Pope's writing to come up with, Here lies a man without pretense, blessed with plain reason and common sense, Calmly he looked on either life and here, saw nothing to regret or there to fear. From nature's temperate feast rose, satisfied, thanked heaven that he lived and that he died. Elizabeth doesn't share his final resting place. She took herself back to her native England and is buried at Wigan, far from Lusk's Eckland tomb, which the Lusk Heritage Group contributed to restoring in the recent past. Originally, the medieval church of Lusk was a huge affair that enclosed the Eklund tomb and its older stablemate, the Barnwall tomb, in front of the altar. Nature took a hand 170 years ago or so with the infamous big wind, which took away most of the roofs in the village, including that of St. Markleland's church. When the new, smaller church was built, the stone memorials were left outside in the elements. Robert Eklund's tombstone remains there to this day, The Barnwell's stonework was subsequently rescued and rehoused in the belfry. Just as important in the overall scheme of things are the rows of headstones spotted around the church. Every name cut in stone was as real as you or I, a life lived in joy or sorrow, gone as we all will be. Stones will last, but in time, even the marks people made will fade away. Well, hello. Somebody asked me, did I have an opinion on The Late Late Show? And as one who watched it from the start, whenever it began in 1895 or whenever it was, and through all the various presenters, I did write down a couple of small opinions. And these are the ones I'm going to give you now in, wait for it, verse. And it goes, are you the one who invented the chip or flew to the moon or swam in the nip Are you the one who always tried? You were on the late, late show. Or are you the one who lived with a bear or turned a pallet into a chair? Are you the one who nearly died? You were on the late, late show. Were you the one with no nightie on? Or are you the mammy whose bishop was gone? Are you the one who wrote that song? You were on the late, late show. Were you the boy band who could nearly sing? Were you the prince who might be king? Were you all right when all was wrong? You were on the late, late show. Were you the Galway girl who went to Yale? Were you the unfortunate stuck in jail? Were you the girl with the smallest horse? You were on the late, late show. Were you the Ollie who showed up pissed? The missing actor who was never missed? Right man, wrong body. yes, of course. You were on the late, late show. Were you too thin, too small, too fat? is your name Gay, or Ryan, or Pat? Did you invent a mobile phone? You were on The Late Late Show. Will you invent a cure for disease? Will you do away with medical fees? Will you swim the ocean all alone? We'll see you on The Late Late Show. Somebody threw out topics to write about and somebody what about the mirror they said as a piece of furniture and what would you write about it and I know some people have serious relationships with their mirror but um, the first thing that came to my mind was what I wrote down here and I said in answer to the question what about the mirror I said are you for real why would you, any of you think that I'd be interested in writing anything about the mirror do I look remotely like someone who would have any interest in giving the mirror the time of day I'm disappointed in your judgement if you think I could have any relationship with a mirror. Fair enough. There may have been a brief dalliance, but that was years and years ago. I was too young to be able to form a partnership with a bloody mirror. And there was nothing in it. Don't mind what people say. Really, I took advantage of an impressionable young man. A boy. That boy looked out at me, full of own notions and self-assurance and black hair and smooth skin and spots, and said to me, The mirror is my friend. I want to be near the mirror. The mirror shows me what I want to see and I believed him. Some friend the mirror turned out to be. Couldn't wait to show me a bunch of grey hairs. Nearly followed me round to show me a row of stitches and a broken tooth. I could go over the top and say the mirror took pleasure in watching the hair turn white, the glasses arriving. But no. It can't be. It is a cold, a dispassionate thing. I even turned away from the mirror for a couple of months. But it really frightened me when I came back and turned this mad-looking bearded old fellow, Not alone and leaning on me, it teamed up with its mate, the scales, to prove beyond reasonable doubt they were not my friends. I fear the scales won't care if I stand on it or not. Nor will the mirror be concerned to reflect nothing at all. So no... Under no circumstances will I write anything about that hypocrite, that bully, that heartbreaker, the mirror. Not a bad kind of an evening at all for November. Plenty of leaves left on the big beech tree at the yard gate. No breeze. A calm, grey, late autumn evening. Boot Farrell drove the little grey tractor in the gate and into the hay barn let down the plough, pull the stopper. Down off the tractor, opened the baler twine round his coat, lit up a woodbine. Always plenty happening in a farmyard of an evening. Young Martin was winding the handle of the turnip pulper, getting ready to feed the cows. None of that kind of work for Boot. He was a tractor man. I think Boot actually had a name, but nobody ever heard it. He was Boot since he was at school, and that was a good while ago. He saw the boss coming out of the house. Right, Mr Larkin, that's the ploughing done for this year. i just done the headlands and the five acres. The pint is going off the plough, but there'll be plenty of time to get a new one before next year. I'll get a new one tonight, Boot. We're not done yet. I'm going to plough Crabtree on Monday. But, uh, Crabtree was never ploughed, Mr Larkin. Is there not some reason it was left alone? Boot, you do the ploughing and I'll do the thinking. Fill that yoke with TVO and have it ready for Monday morning, and then away with you. Here's your wages. Don't put it all across the one counter. Boot put a leg across the bike and down the lane. Halfway down, he stopped and leaned on the gate of Crabtree, a grand square field of four Irish acres, named for an ancient crooked crabtree on the bank, a tree that produced the crookedest, sourest little apples in Ireland and not too many of them. I wonder why it was never ploughed. Found out quick enough that Saturday night in the pub when he broke the news. Mickey Byrne knew everything. Oh, that can't be done. There's a fairy path crossing Crabtree from one corner to the other. My grandfather said old Larkin's grandfather tried to plough it a hundred years ago, and he got his two horses dead in the stable the next day. And before that again, another unfortunate started it. He lost his mind. He used to live in a tree above in Tubbertown. ever after. I think it was a graveyard, said Barney Riley. Remember what happened to the poor fellow over near Skerry's that tried to plough the graveyard at St. Mavie? St. Mavie or St. Mavie, says he. I'll plough this frook before I go. Ground opened up and swallowed him, horse, plough and all. No, tell old Larkin you'll have nothing to do with it. Not so easy. Hard to tell the boss you didn't agree with his plan. Much harder when the boss was Tom Larkin. No, Boot had a lot of thinking to do. After a sleepless night, he approached the subject after mass the next day. Any luck with the plough pint, Mr Larkin? Yes, Boot. It's hanging on the plough. Come in a bit early in the morning and put it on. "Uh, I hear the forecast is bad for this week, Mr Larkin. No use ploughing in the rain. What? "'No rain till Wednesday, boot. "'We'll be well done before that.' "'I uh, heard it might be unlucky to plough up Crabtree. "'Who told you that?' "'Ah, some of the lads were saying, "'Pub talk, boot. "'They're only winding up your clock. "'Get in in the morning and plough the damn field. "'Look, what could a man do?' Boot was in trouble. "'That evening he slunk up the lane and into the yard. "'No one out except you young Martin.' He was feeding the pigs, before doing the milking. Good to be a tractor man, thought Boot. He hated pigs. He could see the plough in the shed with the bloody pint hanging on it. Then he thought, no pint, no ploughing. So there was a chance. So, at two o'clock in the morning, Boot headed up the lane again. No pint going to the gate and squealed like a band tree. The old dog would bark the place down at the drop of a hat and they said Tom Larkin would wake up at the noise of a pound note dropping on the carpet. No, it had to be cross-country, round the back field, across the plank, over the ditch and into the shed. So he did. He grabbed that plough and headed out, missed the plank in the dark, sank to his knees in the ditch, tore the ears off himself and the briars, lost his cap, but it was worth it. Up sharp in the morning and into the yard, I don't see any point here, Mr. Larkin. It it must have got lost. What? Good, it's just as well I got Bill to make two of them on Saturday. I'll get the other one and let you get started. Boot bolted on the new point with leaden fingers. Mr. Larkin, I'm not sure about doing this job at all. All right, Boot. Martin is only mad to work that tractor. You and him can swap jobs from now on. That was some shock demoted to pulp and turnips, milking cows, cleaning out the dirty hoers of pigs. Ah, oh, disgrace. Better to be mad than living in a tree above in Tubbertown. Boot revved up the Massey. Hands clenched on the wheel. Teeth clenched in his head. Buttocks clenched on the iron seat. He hit the lever, and the new plough point slid into the soil of Crabtree. The only thing worth remembering is that we will be forgotten, as will our achievements. Still, we make an effort, and the method tried and tested is to make a mark in the very bones of the earth, the very stuff it is made from. Stone. The stone-made heart of Lusk Village is still here, more than a thousand years after its construction. Battles, tranquillities, ceremony, misery, prosperity... All have waxed and waned in the shadow of our round tower. The village has grown up and been thrown down many times around this stone centre. And around its roots, a tiny stone city has formed. A little city of the dead. There are tombs and headstones, memorials to the great and to the plain. The very first one to catch the eye is dedicated to Sir Robert Aeclan of Kinure, near Rush. Rush House, or Kinure House, was home to the dominant landholders of the area. Robert's grandfather, Sir Henry, bought the estate from the Duke of Ormond around 1708. Sir Robert inherited in 1725, and according to the verse on his tomb, was a model of decency. His wife, Elizabeth, nee Bellingham, made a minor adjustment to Alexander Pope's writing to come up with, Here lays an honest man without pretense, blessed with plain reason and with common sense. Calmly he looked on either life, and here saw nothing to regret or there to fear. From nature's temperate feast, Rose satisfied, thanked heaven that he had lived and that he died. Elizabeth doesn't share his final resting place. She took herself back to her own people in England and is buried at Wigan far from Lusk's Eklund tomb, which the Lusk Heritage Group contributed to restoring in the recent past. Originally, you see, the medieval church of Lusk was a huge affair, and enclosed the Eklund tomb and its older stablemate, the Burnwall tomb, before the altar. Nature took a hand in the affair 180 years ago, with the infamous big wind, which took away most of the roofs in the village, including that of St Macaulain's church. When the new smaller church was built, the stone memorials were left outside in the elements. Robert Eckland's tombstone remains there. The Barnwald's stonework was recently rescued and rehoused in the belfry. Just as important in the scheme of things are the rows of headstones around the church. Every name cut in stone was a person as real as you or I. Life lived in joy or sorrow, gone as we will be. The stone will last, but in time, even the marks people make will fade away. A summer morning is better than any morning. When the sun is shining and there's not a cloud in the sky, it's better still. The earlier, the better. The youngest member of the Farrell family was up and doing. He had plans and they had to be properly carried out. I have to go to Scary's today, ma. Mickey Bourne is going to the circus and he wants me to go for company. This wasn't going to be easy. There were seven girls in a row in the Farrells house before this fella came along. And he was the apple of his mother's eye she couldn't bear for him to be out of her sight. When he got a job with Tom Larkin she found many a reason to pass by whatever field he was in. If he was playing a game of cricket or football, she'd be there on the line and woe betide be tired anyone who tackled him or slighted him, he had a dog's life. Result? He'd never been to Scaries in his life. The all yes. to Mullin, yes. Ballybuckle and Garstown, yes. Drogheda for boots and clothes. But that was it. No, you're not. Scaries, is it? That's a horrid place. Everything you have would be stolen. And I told you before, don't be knocking about with that Mickey Bourne. He's only a pup. No, he's not, Ma. He's all right. Sure, I'm nearly 16 years of age. I'll be grand and scarys. Them circuses are wrong. Father Sweetman was saying the other Sunday they were occasions of sin. I'm sure they'd kidnap young lads and bring them out foreign. No, young Farrell, you're not going. Don't call me that feckin' first name, Ma. I will. You're my special man and you have a special name. This lad would give us two ears to be called Johnny or Jem or Charlie, but not that bloody title. Look, I'm going, ma. We'll be there in no time on the bikes. We'll be back early. You don't know the way, and it's uphill all the way, and all the way back to. The first thing they'll do is steal your good bike. I've no money to be buying you new ones, and the old grub you get over there poison you. I'll lock up the bike, ma. I've my own money now to buy what I want. Sure, so you could give me a bit of a sandwich to bring with me. I won't have to buy grub. Mrs Farrell knew she was beaten, but she wasn't happy. She wouldn't be content until he was back under the thatch. She wrapped up a fairly hardy heel of brown bread, wouldn't do to have him enjoying himself, and gave him about six yards of a chain and a padlock for the bike. One more try. It'll be raining on no time. That bright morning is a very bad sign. Not at all, Cecilia. I'll be grand. If Mrs Farrell only knew, Mickey Byrne wasn't going at all. This was a solo run and a try for independence. So twelve o'clock, away he went, a bit lopsided on the bike with the weight of the chain, but grinning like a dog, this was the life. The knoll never looked so well as he shot through it and took the Bilbriggan Road past the big house at Reynolds Town. Given its speed, it wasn't uphill at all. He turned to Dolla Haysea, the home of the Casey's, and through the mat and Bowhill, he'd done serious research on the best route he could take. At Bilrothery, he headed up towards the Black Hills, from there he could see Scary sprawled out in front of him with its islands and beaches. It was like everything he had ever imagined. A bit of caution must have trickled down from the mother because when he was about a bit of mile and a half from the town he took to the fields and chained the back wheel of the bike to a hardy ash tree and took to his feet. Just before he hit the railway tunnel he tried the lunch. It was a brown heel about the shape of a hatchet and not much softer. So he gave it to a dog he met. The dog went off and buried it in the hope it might get tender. Scaries on a sunny summer day in the 1950s, with a circus in town. It was packed. It was Las Vegas. It was Monte Carlo. It was Rio. Young Farrell was beside himself. He pushed through the crowds, slapping his pockets to make sure the pickpockets his mother had warned him about didn't dip him. At every turn there was something new. There were three card trick men was a strong man. there were shops and stalls a bit of lunch might be in order now a few oranges bag or two of chips four tomatoes bottle of red lemonade bottle of sidona there was never hunger in farrell's house but the fare was fairly plain this was gourmet style having eaten and drank and seen the sights at his leisure young farrell parted with the tanner for his circus ticket and found himself a seat on a plank at the back of the crowd, with his head stuck to the canvas and settled in for some serious entertainment. Live music, trumpets of all sorts, a bundle of white ponies doing their stuff in the ring. He couldn't wait for tigers and trapezes and girls in tights. Now the digestive system is a very complex process. Her man had a good one. His mother was convinced he was delicate, but he was delicate the way a goat is. No problem with brown bread and porridge and cabbage and bacon or an odd chop, apple tart, buttermilk. Bring it on. But introduce half a dozen oranges, a sack of chips, tomatoes, a bottle of lemonade, a bottle of Sidona. That is a problem. He knew he had to go. Down through the crowd like an east wind, out through the flap, people everywhere. No toilets, not as much as a bush to reverse into. What the feck? Round the tent, still people. The belly swelled out like a bucket. Tripping over ropes and enclosures, he found himself in with Princess Penelope's nineteen performing poodles. Not a bit nice were they. They cursed him and hunted him till they pinned him against a big old lion's wagon. They concentrated on one of his boots, which they tore off and ate. The lion had to look at him, but nature took its course. It had to happen. Farrell got a hand to his braces, but too late. And when the lion heard the delicate sound of the young man exploding into his carter eyes, He went and hid under his bit of straw now what was going to happen nothing in his life so far had prepared him for this marooned 12 miles from home a mile and a half from his bike destroyed disgraced with only one boot only hope take to the gardens and back lanes if anyone saw him he'd just have to kill himself he emerged out through the tunnel only comfort was it started to rain and rain it did Eventually, after losing his way several times, he landed back to his bike storage, good old chain. The back wheel was still firmly locked to the tree. Only thing, the rest of the bloody bike was gone. Ah, oh, ma, you're always fecking right. He found a stream and set out to clean himself up as well as possible. Not an easy task, and then walk across country to home and hearth. A bad, bad day to be a young feral. Hours and hours, chased by cattle, torn by briars, straying from his root, stuck in bogs, still suffering aftershocks from the fruit and chips. He was close to exhaustion when he came into familiar country. Mickey Bourne thought he was having hallucinations. Almost dark in the lashing rain, a drowned miserable rat, one boot, two-thirds of a trousers, lug a bicycle wheel and 20 foot of a chain, scraped, scratched, filthy, stinking. But he was home and he wasn't up for travelling too far in the future. Only one compensation. From that day, his hated name disappeared, and ever after, till his dying day, he was known as boot furrow. What's the big days during the year for you, Charlie? So asked little Petey Murray. Petey was about 13 at that stage, and as everybody knew, adults and children, he never stopped asking questions. That little fecker wants to know everything. He'd ask the colour of your granny's knickers. Tell him nothing. But Charlie MacDonald was a perfect target for Petey because he loved talking. Ah, wait till I think now. Pancake Tuesday is a big day in our house. And my birthday in May. And the day we get the summer holidays in school. And the day we kill the pig. Oh, that's a great day with us as well, says Petey. How does your old fella kill the pig? And Charlie didn't want to say he was never let into the shed when the pig was being killed, so he took a chance and said, oh, he chokes him with a rope. That stopped Petey in his tracks. He had to file that in his mind under the heading, How to Kill a Fat Pig. Listen, it was a major event every year in farmers' yards. The pig, fed on the fat of the land for six months or more, big as a pony, had to be converted into bacon to feed a family over the winter and into the spring. Everybody had their own method and wouldn't hear of any other way, but they all involved sharp knives and a serious amount of squealing. Everybody was in a state of tension. Hold him. Put out that dog. Mind the light. Get out of my way. Poor pig had to squeal as loud as to be heard over the crowd. It usually involved several neighbours because what was wanted was strength and the courage you got from wanting to look good in front of everyone else. Catch the poor pig, get a rope on him. One option was to stun the poor fellow with a hammer, and then out with the pig sticker. That was a ground-down knife in the family for generations, and only used for that purpose. Don't cut twine with that knife, you'll destroy it. This holy knife was sharpened for hours with a stone. For this one stroke every year, that throat was cut. Some skilled person, usually the woman of the house, had to catch the blood in a basin. Hold it, don't spill it, stir it. Keep stirring, is everything ready to mix with it, oatmeal, and it had to be stirred for hours before it was cased up and boiled for more hours to make black pudding, or pig's puddings. The late pig had to be hoisted up by the hind legs. Everything inside him had to come out, and everything outside him had to be shaved off. Nobody wants hairy bacon anymore. Now the big day aspect began. Anything that could be cooked fresh... Like liver and kidneys, pieces of pork were divided out and out came the pan, lashings of fresh pork. The next hard labour bit was salting the other 95% of the pig. Surely a hundredweight of salt was bought from the salt house in Balbriggan and rubbed into the shoulders and loins and hams and belly for hours until it would hold no more salt. Then into a dark shed, under straw and stones to keep for months to share with spuds and turnips and cabbage and keep life in a family. And another big day is Christmas Eve, Petey, said Charlie, it's... But Petey was gone. Gone to spread the word of Charlie MacDonald's dad, Strangdon was big. pig. <music>